Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman here. Thanks for joining us for the podcast. Today we interviewed none other than my older brother, Matthew Chapman. Matt works in the private equity world, specifically dealing with industrial real estate. He's got an awesome career path and he's learned so much about institutional investing. I wanted to have Matt on specifically because institutional investing can be super broad and very opaque. I find that most insta individual investors have no idea what the components are going on behind the scenes from whose money it is that they're investing and what they're buying and why they're buying it. So I wanted to have Matt on to demystify the space a little bit and talk about some of the trends that he sees on the front lines of investing uh, large sums of capital for uh, institutional investors. If you're at all interested in commercial real estate or uh, institutional investing, this is going to be an awesome episode. So without further ado, let's bring in my older brother, Matt Chapman. Cool. Well, hey, Matt Chapman, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. Matt, part of why I wanted to bring you on today is to share some insight into your career and uh, your expertise in dealing with institutional investing, specifically dealing with real estate or commercial real estate. So since Matt, you work at a large private equity company and part of what they do is buy uh, industrial properties. Can you give us just a really quick high level overview of what your job is like right now? And then I'll ask a series of questions about um, some of your expertise. Yeah, thanks. Um, what I'd say is that I invest on behalf of, of investors, large and small, but the majority of the capital that I invest comes through funds that are set out to accommodate an underlying shareholder that is a pension or an endowment or a sovereign wealth fund. And those um, funds are really set up to take care of pensioners or a, a school or a uh, large hospital organization or ultimately in a sovereign wealth fund, the uh, populace of a uh, nation state. And they seek uh, firms like mine to go out and invest uh, their capital, both for a return on their capital, being some sort of you know, total return, and then a return of their capital, uh, such that we preserve the value of that capital in a relative sense, uh, relative to, uh, to other, uh, other investments, or really just relative to today's dollar um, when we hand it back to them someday in the future. And ultimately, that, that is set to benefit uh, all the people that are beneficiaries of those plans, the pensions, the sovereign wealth, so that uh, the government or those, uh, those organizations can pay those dollars back out as uh, to meet those obligations um, to, uh, to the end benefit of uh, the general populace. Super important. And I want to dig into this one piece of it because there's a lot of confusion in terms of how private equity companies work and operate. And it's such a great reminder to realize that there is an end beneficiary there. These are just pools of capital. 
And if I can use an example in the uh, capital markets or the public market world that I predominantly live in, let's say the world of a mutual fund, a mutual fund that buys the S&P 500 is simply a compilation of a bunch of mom and pops. Maybe they've got $10,000 or $100,000 and they put it into a mutual fund. And then that turns around and buys the 500 largest stocks in the United States at any given time. So using that as just an example of pool of capital and going into a public resource, this is a similar idea, but different in terms of how it operates. So there'd be like the uh, like California, like CalPERS, the uh, pension for federal uh, state employees. So CalPERS is as income. If I'm going to say this out loud, and then maybe you can correct me if I'm saying it wrong. The state employees have income. Part of that gets separated off and pooled together in the pension, and then they they've got all this money and they need to invest it so they can pay the retirement sometime in the future. And then you guys are taking those dollars and trying to find the best use for them. So is that is an operation? Is that how it works? Yeah. Yes. And in in part, the the sort of the the transaction there of collecting or aggregating those dollars at the pension system as they reserve them uh, in terms of like a fee or a scrape uh, out of a paycheck or dues um, in the case of uh, some sort of a uh, Sometimes in a pension, or, or sometimes in 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 a uh, in a union uh, context, they then pool that capital, and then that capital then gains scale very quickly. And uh, again, part of the reason why you have institutional investors like myself is that we operate in a space that is uh, that is at a large deployment scale, such that we can take a lot of those large dollars and help try to find larger scale uh, investments that may not be readily available or on the radar mm. of private capital or private investors that are just one or two, either just, just median income uh, investors or high net worth. Um, they may not yeah. come across the, the, the style and type of investments so, that, that we partake in. I'm glad you bring that up because then that's giving the beneficiaries of the pension fund and their future retirement. They, they essentially, because of their, their strength in numbers, so to speak, that they've got so much money there that they can then go do deals that are going to be off the radar had they just done them on their own or even with a, a family office. So you're talking in scope, give us some dollar ranges that you're, that you're talking about. What's a, what's a minimum investment for one deal or, or that sort of thing? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to speak too specifically to the world or the funds that I that I invest on behalf of, because I think the better the better focus here is that for an institutional investor, they are interested in deploying capital in an efficient manner, and that means that they are cognizant of the capital cost of the equity the friction to deploy the capital inclusive of human capital, which is paying people like me to, uh, to, uh, to act on their behalf and help them to invest. And so obviously the proportionality of having a person like me, but investing larger scale dollars um, in the you know, tens or hundreds of millions per transaction unit, that helps provide the underlying shareholder a great benefit from a efficient human capital allocation because they're paying me to to work on their behalf, but
but my services are just a tiny fraction of the underlying dollars that we're investing on behalf of. And yeah. that uh, it can expand to all reaches of uh, transaction costs. And so some of this is, is seen in, in the recent, in your world, uh, which is a little bit more of unit transaction costs at scale for groups like Vanguard, where they're able to float their, their large uh, headcount um, largely because of the scale of, of AUM that they have. It's similar for us in that if we can deploy capital efficiently, then ultimately that's a benefit to the underlying shareholder and they, they are mm-hmm. not encumbered by the high, the high load of a, um, a one-off transaction that's much smaller. If we think about the unit transaction cost for an attorney, let's say, uh, you know, I need to hire an attorney, they need to review a purchase contract and help me negotiate that. Um, their billable hour is the same billable hour for a $100 million transaction as it is for a $1 million transaction. And so if we think That's about point. the relative unit of measure there, the $100 million transaction, the underlying shareholders, when we do it at scale, uh, obviously are getting a beneficial uh, relative investment prediction. Yeah, that's great. I think that's helpful to wrap our mind around, wrap my mind around again, because I think there's, there's this, uh, as, as you said, prior to the call, this Illuminati, um, this, there's a black box when it comes to institutional investing. So getting that sense that they're not necessarily seeking out big dollars just because it's sexy. It's it's also highly efficient for the beneficiary because the the frictional cost is lower. If I'm understanding that, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do you have a sense of um, slight tangent? If you take a pension, do you ever get insight into the organizations that you're getting capital from to deploy? Do you get a sense of what their asset allocation is ahead of time? If it's a hundred, you know, let's say it's a multi-billion dollar pension fund, but you're getting a small piece of it to do some real estate transactions on, do you ever know ahead of time what that looks like? I'm not as involved in the sell side at this point, selling our product to, uh, to a pension or our funds to a pension. I'm much more on the, the buy side at the moment, um, actually you know, investing that capital on, on behalf of those funds. But gotcha. in, in my prior experience, they, you know, usually these groups, as they survey the landscape of potential options, they us- usually do talk reasonably candidly about trying to find the appropriate uh, risk and return equilibrium for their underlying shareholders as they take into account their future obligations. So as they forecast out the dollars that they're going to have to return, both in yeah. principle and in alpha, um, they, they then try to seek a way to balance to that, that obligation. And that means that they're running their asset allocation mix calculations to try and come up with the best risk and return thresholds. Uh, for their obligations. And so sometimes uh, being just in the real estate space, sometimes we hear, well, we need, we're a little overweight or we're underweight to real estate. And really what they're trying to say is they're, they're trying to find uh, a way to use more or less dollars to spread risk and gain return in a relative sense to the other investment options that they have at their disposal. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And as the, the, the certified financial planner and me putting on my CFP cap is interested in the asset allocation, but I guess that'll be, that's more for uh, another conversation. If I think about your job specifically, can you walk me through what some of the, the big guideposts are, the big steps? So somebody on the sell side, they've done whatever they need to do to talk about asset allocation, uh, some pension or sovereign wealth fund has brought to the table a certain number of dollars. Walk me through forward from that, how you get involved and what some of the larger steps are that you try to think about. Sure. So uh, if, you, if you think about some of the funds that, that, that I, I, have, I am and have worked for in the past, usually you know, they all have a, ba- a basic business plan and they all try to der- you know, deliver to uh, to that business plan that we've discussed with uh, with the underlying investor, and then it's about actually going and executing on that business plan, and that execution comes in in two parts. One is identifying and uh, completing the actual acquisition, the transaction, the investment in in the asset, and then the next is the operation, the cash flow generation, and hope, hopefully the ability to uh, create some appreciation uh, out of the asset such that you get a return uh, on your dollars um, before you return them back to the uh, back to the shareholder or the uh, the underlying investor in terms of like what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find uh, within the universe of options that I have at my disposal being things that are widely marketed for sale things that are not widely marketed for sale things that are might be generated by relationships in the marketplace, we try to identify assets that have true underlying value. And in real estate, a lot of that is based on location. A lot of that is based on the cost that it would take to replace the existing asset. Okay. And then the third is really, what is the value of the income stream? Um, Okay. Uh, it, Those are three really good things. Can I just want to circle back on it? One, sure. you're saying replacement costs. That makes me think of insurance terminology. So one is uh, the value of the, of the property based on replacement costs. Another is real or location, and then the third is the income stream. I guess part of why I, that that comes that's interesting to me is because I think a lot of people think of in, income stream being the the primary way of valuing the property, but maybe that's not. The only way. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not the only way. And depending on what asset class you are looking at uh, within within the real estate universe, and then within the the type of investing that you can do within those uh, various product types, uh, in the income stream it becomes a larger or smaller portion of the total value of the investment, and so depending on the underlying credit profile of uh, of of the the tenant or tenants that are providing the rent checks that create the uh, revenue or the income for uh, for the investment or depending on the mix of tenants and how uh, frequent the lease expirations and how much we're going to have to as a, as as we operate the real estate potentially have suites or units that might uh, go vacant for some period of time versus maybe a, a, a large asset that has only one tenant that, that, you know, they have a lease role 
um, and expiring maybe 10 years away. Those are really different types of profiles. And so depending on the investment, uh, the income portion uh, can change its proportional value within the, the, the total uh, in investment uh, value. And else? I would actually, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you're right. Uh, I would actually say that, that it's a surprisingly small amount in the universe of, of things that I invest in. And that's, that's for two reasons. One is the inherent value of quality real estate, the location, the quality of the physical structure, its uh, ease of access, all, all the basic sort of nuts and bolts fundamentals that people would understand when they go out to go find their own home or apartment, you know, they, they gauge, they gauge all those things either explicitly sure. or intuitively. Sure. Um, all those things are, are the, the real value of, of the real estate. Can this attract another tenant down the road and what's the ease uh, of, of doing so? That's a good that transferable. That's a good transferable concept. I I think again the 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 lack of transparency in the institutional investing, specifically large commercial buildings, makes me think that there's a completely different way of of approaching that. But you're saying just the basics of location, the quality of the building, and ease of access. Those are still transferable concepts when you think about the value, valuation of that property. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, and and again, there's there's a really broad universe of of, uh, of types of investing, and and it could be everything from trying to buy um, uh, you know downtown office buildings, and uh, the way that that a lot of downtown office buildings price is they don't actually price with a with a huge amount of income uh, as a portion of the total investment. The large the investment is largely predicated on a um, uh, uh, you know, safeguard of capital. And so the investment is it's going to hold relative value for a long time. And it may, we hope that it appreciates, but the income portion is actually not going to be terribly important to the total return. Whereas if I buy an outer lying asset that maybe is an industrial asset on the fringe of a, of a marketplace uh, that uh, is not as easy to, uh, to replace tenancy, then it's going to have a much higher volatility and much higher uh, reliance on the underlying cash flows to create yeah. value for, for me it. to invest in. Yeah. Big light bulb. Thank you for sharing that. Something we talked about earlier is essentially saying deals that are on market versus off market. <laughs> and it makes me think about the research process that you must go through to try to find these all of these deals and there's so many tangential thoughts I have even from that. One, one thought that I have is in the residential world, uh, individuals have access to Zillow and Redfin. How similar uh, is the institutional or industrial world? Are there sites of, that are available that are similar to Redfin and Zillow? Um, there are. There are a few uh, portals that have uh, these companies have set out to create like large data aggregation systems, uh, largely in kind with Zillow, that they can provide relative metrics on the actual real estate itself, but also on the underlying fundamentals of the marketplace 
in which it resides. Everything from demographics to well, um, product type product type vacancy, so that you can understand is this a marketplace for the type of products that it is. Uh, let's say an office building is. Are there a lot of vacant suites in the local submarket for office buildings? You know, and that's a relative metric on the strength of the underlying market and how you know how important or how uh, how much money I might want to pay for it, right? If it's a large vacancy then in the submarket, then I'm going to want to play it an awful lot less because I'm taking on a lot more risk um, when I go out and compete for a future tenant. Um, so that there are sites that do this. A lot of it, though, comes down to just some fundamentals in real estate, which is actually going out and visiting real estate. It is a tangible asset in that you can go out, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can drive around it. You can uh, see how it works within uh, within a micro marketplace usually, and that's nothing. Nothing that you can pick up on a computer screen can uh, mm -hmm. can uh, can replace that. Um, and so there's a huge it's, amount of travel that's involved just to make sure that you can go mm -hmm. out, and you can understand the value of how the real estate actually functions um, for the tenants and within the marketplace in which it resides. That's interesting. Yeah, I hear about often for you or friends in the similar line of work, the travel, but didn't always put together the pieces of why that was so important. And I think you bring up a good point because it is tangible and because you can go see it different from, again, the securities world of if you want to buy a, an individual stock, the old school method of Benjamin Graham of trying to read the tea leaves from um, company executives are going to visit it or, or this and that. That's um, maybe much less realistic than it is for you, which is more realistic of actually going to visit the property. I, I, had, I was thinking though, still in terms of research uh, process and sourcing new deals, how much of your deals over the, over the past few years have come from a personal contact from a broker? versus some other source? I'd say a, a very high percentage. I, th I think for, for two reasons. One, one is the, the style of investing that, that I, I have been um, uh, involved in has, uh, has been predicated on trying to find some inefficiencies in the marketplace, something that might not be readily available even to some of my institutional competitors. And a lot of those opportunities come down to relationships and that you have the, uh, the appropriate capital source, you are a trustworthy buyer, you can transact in a confidential and swift manner with the, uh, you know, in, in a way that makes the total transaction valuable for both buyer and seller. And then there's a, there is a significant uh, marketplace for, for marketed transactions where brokers or bankers will create an auction by selling, selling real estate uh, through a bid process where they provide initial information and then they, then they try to clear it through various rounds of auction, winnowing down the, 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 the buyer pool. Um, and so I, I'd say that in my career, the majority of deals that I've actually closed on have been off-market deals. The marketed deals, by their very nature, are more competitive because there's lots more transparency um, into the underlying asset and potentially a larger pool of potential competitors because that's the broker or the banker's job is to create a market 
and uh, and to create internal competition amongst the buyers. But those are also really good, uh, usually really good transactions because there's there's usually a lot of vetting that that occurs up front, and you can clear yes. a lot of the sort of the the question marks or the skeletons that might might mm. exist um, mm. underneath uh, underneath a potential transaction. Um, by having those brokers and bankers involved up front. Yeah, super interesting. Well, we've talked a little bit about the type of pools of capital that you utilize, a little bit about how you start this process with a business plan, talked a little bit about research, just in an interest of time, maybe 10 minutes or so left. Are there one or two things that you'd like to share just to points of interest or things that maybe the public doesn't know much about in terms of investing in industrial real estate, what are some items that you feel might be interesting to, to our listeners? Well, I, I have the benefit right now of, of, uh, of investing my time and energy and ultimately the dollars um, that, uh, that I'm tasked with helping to deploy um, into industrial real estate. And I think there's a, there's a really interesting epochal shift in how real estate both for uh, retail consumption and for actual goods consumption is uh, is occurring uh, not just in our country but 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 globally and with the advent of technology and the ability for all of us to go onto amazon and then find the asset that we or the the thing that we want and then have it shipped directly to our house and disintermediating the way that we shopped in these sort of like localized commerce stores, you know, which we would consider a, a normal shopping mall or a, or a grocery store, by disintermediating those, those uh, it's creating a lot more demand for uh, for ask for buildings and uh, for space in in my world, and so it's a very interesting inflection point into how we use real estate and uh, what what does the consumer ultimately need um, in terms of their delivery or their consumption of goods. And then that flows to the company that's providing that retail transaction, which then flows to how do they hold their inventory, which then flows to demand for inventory space, which is then my world. And so it's an interesting cascade that that, that we're watching. Wow, that's super awesome. So if I'm, I'm going to say it back to understand, in the old world, I'm doing that with really big air quotes to prior to the old world of what uh, lack of lack of Amazon transactions, lack of online shopping, you've had sort of localized use of real estate and inventory. And now when it's everyone's a prime member, the there's there's a there's a logical link between prime memberships, and then the use of industrial buildings. Yes. And prime memberships are sort of like the headline in the news, but it's not all the news. What it represents is it represents a, a broader shift in, in the mode of consumption, both for the consumer side of the business, but also on the industrial and warehousing and inventory holding uh, side of the business. Uh, and so it, it is changing structurally how we as consumers of goods behave and the expectations that we have and that we place on retailers 
for uh, you know the duration between the click and the purchase, or just really the idea. You know, when you have an idea generation, I want or I need X product, and when you expect or how the manner in which you expect to receive that product is uh, is impacting real estate decisions up and down the variety of product types, everything from uh, office space and how we staff businesses, where we staff businesses, uh, obviously the retail space that used to potentially be the end point of sale for a, for a given good, and the industrial space, which, may, which right now the shift is becoming more, the point of sale is actually occurring warehouse and then someone is delivering it, whether it's a delivery truck, truck or an Uber driver uh, is then right. delivering potentially that that end asset or that end good. And so that's that's a seismic shift in uh, in the traffic mm-hmm. patterns and in the mm-hmm. goods consumption model that we previously had. And uh, it's changing the underlying underpinnings of, at least for me, the industrial marketplace for buildings, for space, for demand. Uh, of that space. Wow. I love that. I really appreciate your time, Matt, and coming in and uh, giving us some of these insights into your world. We'd love to have you back on again. Thanks for being here, man. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the John Chapman show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.